time to celebrate a service opportunity we had recently. For those who have been coming here, you know that we have a partnership with W.T. Moore Elementary School, which we just had a big supply drive for. And I want to say that yesterday, no, Friday, I know what time is, we dropped off eight bins of items. I mean, like big bins of items and over $800 in Amazon gift cards for those teachers to buy supplies this year. So thank you, E3. As always, your generosity is greatly appreciated and is a key part of how we build God's kingdom here in Tallahassee by serving those doing the real work in the trenches of our society. So awesome job, E3. And with that hard transition to the message, I'm really good at transitions. I have a podcast. Anyway, today we are continuing our series on finding health through this thing that we call shadow boxing, this process whereby we confront our shadow self, those unhealthy coping mechanisms within us, our broken motivations, hypocrisies, fears, behaviors, thought patterns, emotions, these things that as we've been exploring over this series, that if we leave them unchecked, will eventually take over and direct our lives. Who's been there before? Anybody? Amen. Amen. And what we're really looking at, the crux of the series, is how we have to confront our shadow. We have to be willing to name it and to ultimately allow Jesus to lead us into transformation through that process of shining a light on who we truly are. And this week, we are talking about a topic in which the shadow loves to get intertwined It is a topic that the shadow uses to make a mess of our lives and our world, and that is power. Broken power dynamics and unhealthy visions of power. Who has seen that run amok in our world? Amen. And to do that, I wanted to bring up two of my favorite people from here at E3 to help me wrestle with this topic and maybe how the shadow interplays with it and how Jesus invites us into a healthier vision of power. And I will let them introduce themselves. So... Liz, you want to go first? Sure. Uh, My name is Elizabeth Ross. I am a former staff member here at E3, have a background in counseling, and I'm excited to be here to participate and share with you guys. Thank you, Liz. My name is Desmond Cole. Um, I've been at E3, I think, around 15-ish years, so I've been here around a long time. My day job is I work with Leon County School District. uh, Specifically, I'm a principal at Grabby High School. And I'm also uh, a member of Wise Council uh, most recently. Some would, yeah, thank you. Some would say Desmond's the most powerful man alive. Anyway, now for our conversation today, I want to start off by just setting the table. We are defining power as simply the capacity to influence. There's actually a great Richard Gula quote that I want to start with, which is he says, power is what enables us to make things happen or not. In this sense, everyone has power but we do not have it to the same degrees. Power as influence is always relative to our resources. One of the most important self-examinations we can do is to name our sources of power, for we are most at risk of ethical misconduct when we minimize or ignore our power. And I begin here because I think if power is influence, which means that everyone has it in one way or another, whether it's from holding a specific position or a special gifting or competency, a relational role or whatever else, we all have it. Which means that the problem with power more often than not is not that it exists, but rather that we often use it with unawareness, selfishness, or recklessness, allowing our shadows to misuse power, wield it carelessly, or fail to exercise it when we should, and thus create unhealthy situations. 
Simply put, the problem isn't that we have power, but rather that we often don't understand it, nor try to understand how to exercise it responsibly. So with that in mind, I want to start with what healthy power looks like. What does power look like when we use it in a healthy way or when we use it with healthy emotional boundaries in our inner life? For me, and of course I'm going to answer in a Liz way with all the feelings that I can muster up. Um, the, I have to start with boundaries. Um, that's how I frame this for myself. And the best description that I've ever heard of boundaries is as a fence. Now, prior to this, I always thought of a fence as its primary purpose is to keep things out. But fences also keep things in. So an example, my husband and I just bought a house and the very, very first thing that we did was build a fence. And so we take into consideration outside threats, things that are outside of our fence, like trees or the neighbor's dog that gets out or the street behind our house. But really what's more important is what is inside of our fence. It designates this is our safe space. This is where our dogs will run and play and go out. This might be where we have family gatherings, maybe where our future kids will play. And so what's really important about that fence is it designates this is our safe space, this is our home. And I think that emotional boundaries are the same way. When we talk about things like our inner self or our soul or our emotions, it's like this vastness that's really difficult to define. Sometimes for me, I can't really tell when I'm in that realm, where do I begin and where do I end and that type of thing. So what emotions do I lean into and process and are healthy that I need to feel and grow from? And what are emotions that are just imagined or unhealthy and I need to surrender and let go of? Um, I need a fence to help me with that. And I think that's where power comes from, being self-aware enough to have those boundaries with the world around us to keep ourselves safe. So power is not coming from the world around us, what's outside of our fence. Really, the power is coming from what's inside of us, that safe space that we have, nurturing ourselves. And obviously, we don't do that alone. We have God and we have others, and fences have gates. We're the gatekeeper, what comes in and what comes out of our fence. Um, but being mindful of what's inside of our fence, what's inside of my fence emotionally, I believe that's where my power comes from. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's really important for exercising it too, because I think more often than not, unawareness is, I mean, the cause of a great many sense, right? Where I am unaware of what's going on inside of me emotionally, and I can't actually name I'm angry right now, I'm playing out this tape about how I don't have enough, so I need to get more. And what's really funny about power is actually really anything of like leadership and position is we like to think, well, I can be that kind of unaware and that kind of broken on the inside. But when I get into like the role where it matters, where I have to like do good in the world or I'm put into a crisis, I'm just going to be a completely different person and it's, I'm going to be heroic. And that's just not the case, right? And if I'm not healthy here, when I am given power, I guarantee I'm going to wield it unhealthily. I mean, that's just the name of the game, because who I am in one thing is who I am in everything. And so I think that's really wise, this idea of having this space in which you can develop that self-awareness and that health. So that as you go into the world and actually start having influence, you're doing it from home. You're doing it from home base in a centered place. You're in more of a, a position of power in which you have an authority given to you by your title. How do you answer this question? How do you think about it? Um, I, I want to go away from the word authority and maybe use influence as maybe a better word um, yeah. for me, for, for me, right? So as the principal of several schools in my uh, 29 years 
of existence in the Leon County School District. Um, one thing that's super duper important to me is making sure that I am trying to be my best self every single day because I know I have young people that are watching me and I have uh, teachers and staff who are watching me. Uh, specifically, uh, if I can just be really candid with this group, is I'm an African American whether you, whether you know that or not, right? I, I think everybody, everybody can sense that, right? It's a pretty good what? sense. Yes, I know, right? And um, when I am making decisions, uh, monitoring, communicating. Uh, the fact that I'm African-American in, in a lot of those situations doesn't have a lot to do with it, but, but sometimes it does, and I know that I need to be on my game all the time. It's important that, I'm, that, I, am, that I am hitting all of the, the boxes, checking all the boxes each and every day, because I know I have young people who are watching me, specifically kids that look like me, um, and kids that don't look like me. They, and so it's important that as a as a as a black person in in our society in in public schools specifically i need to be on my game and so having that knowledge and i've always had that knowledge even, even as a teacher at rickards high school back in 1992 i knew that what i was venturing in on was going to be so important and i could be changing the life a day possibly an existence of a young person without really knowing it, but I always had a sense that I had that power, i.e. influence, to be able to do that on a daily basis. And we're talking about 180 days, and if you're coaching and you're doing all those things that I did as a, as a teacher, as, a, as an instructional person, I felt that it was super important to me to have that influence and never, not one day, not one time, take that influence for granted. Mm. Yeah, I really like that. I think two parts of that I'm going to jump on. I think um, the first is inventorying our power, being self-aware of where I actually have influence, whether it's intentional, like those moments in which I actually wield it and say, you need to do this subordinate or someone who's working for me and actually, because of the role, have to impose my will a little bit. We'll come back to that later because that can get really unhealthy. But there are moments where we're intentionally wielding the power or the, the influence that we have. But then what I like about what you talked about is the unintentional moments. And this is actually where I struggled with them. I'll, I'll just be honest with you guys. This is where I struggled with the most becoming a pastor. Because if you guys know me, I do not like being told what to do. And when people tell me, you're a pastor now, so you need to take seriously how you look and how you talk and how you blah, 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 and the influence you have just by having this position, didn't like that very much. <laughs> didn't like being told. I just wanted to be me, right? And I felt really constricted by this idea that I have to in any way change my posture once I gain a sense of influence or a title of influence. And I'll just be honest, that caused wounds. And it's not about being inauthentic. I think you guys know I'm very authentic. I talk about addiction. I talk about recovery. I, I'm not hiding anything. I have no desire to hide anything. But it is about it being intentional. Because where I used to maybe make flippant jokes, sometimes about religious matters, sometimes about social matters, suddenly if I'm talking to someone who does not know me, that is a person who they have in their mind, and I can like this or not, it's just true, thinks that I'm speaking on behalf of God or thinks that I'm speaking on behalf of the church or thinking, thinks that I'm in some way carrying an extra weight to my words. Thus, if I am unintentional and I say things just on a flippant way, I can cause deep wounds to people just because they're watching and observing because of that title. And again, like I said, I can like that or not. That's just reality. And if I don't take inventory of that, Disaster, right? Um, and that's been a hard lesson for me. 
I think the other part I really liked is gratitude. Man, it is hard to be a grateful leader in which I look at like the people who work under me or for me or with me and just say thank you rather than getting resentful because maybe they're not doing things the way I want them to or uh, the way I would do it myself if I was in that position. And I think that's a key part of healthy power is just being grateful that we are put in the positions that we are to wield the influence that we've been given for this short amount of time. Because when I'm grateful for that and I'm like, this is not my own, this is a gift that God has given me to make a positive impact in the world, my posture towards how I wield that changes entirely than if, say, I'm entitled or resentful about it. So I think those are great. And we're going to kind of turn to the dark side, if you will, now, um, mm -hmm. because I think it's more fun to talk about positive examples of power, but I think the more prevalent ones that we see in our world are often the unhealthy models of power. So how can the shadow self kind of take over and sway our engagement with power and power dynamics? How can it become unhealthy? Uh, it can be unhealthy when you feel like you, you're in this position and you feel like you just get too big for your britches, <laughs> right? I mean, if, just, to, just to cut it um, plainly and cleanly, um, I was just recently, um, I'm now recently part of Wise Counselor. Um, if, I, if I had the wrong mindset, I would come into that position thinking I'm going to come in here and do my thing and, ch and, and, and ch change E3 to a lesser degree and, um, and do some things that, that may not be best for the church. I'm not doing that. You know, but that power will allow you to, your mindset to, to be so sullied and soiled and, and just negatively, to, to a negative place where you're, where you're negatively impacting uh, an, an E3 or a body of people or something like that. At, at the school, the same way, I could easily walk around and say, I'm the principal of this place and y'all better darn well do and say what I do. I, that is not my, t my level of leadership, but it, can, but it can be. And as a teacher at times, early in my career, I mentioned that when I, when I had that first response a few moments ago, but there were times where I got, I got beside myself as a, as a teacher, and, and each time that I did that, I regretted it, and, I, and, I, if, and if I was speaking uh, inappropriately to a kid or saying something out of bounds to a, to a, to a colleague, I would, I would almost immediately realize that and get them immediately or the next day after I've had some time to um, reflect and say, hey, man, you were being a, you were being a jerk just then. Like, go make that right. And I did that. And I'm still doing that in my, in my life right now because it's important that I treat people right. It doesn't matter that I have this, this, uh, this, this title. It really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to God. And, and, it sh and it really shouldn't matter to anybody else. It's just a position that I hold. And I, those are decisions I need to make. There's a way I need to conduct myself on a daily basis. But, it, but I am no more important than anybody else. Mm. Just one of the herd, right? Yeah, no, I like that. Uh, by the way, having a kid has really been eye-opening for that because, uh, uh, yeah, they start mirroring everything that you say and do. You're like, <laughs> why is my toddler being mean to the dog? You're like, because I was mean to the dog. <laughs> it's a horrible moment, right, in which suddenly by, again, not being aware of that shadow's influence on others unintentionally is shaping another and how they, in turn, wield their influence. And, man, we laugh because it's like a, toddler and it's funny when they do adult things poorly, but it is more dramatic when you think about it on a social level, right? If we do that enough times, not just as an individual, but as a society, it becomes almost self-replicating and self-exponentially more harmful in which a pattern of behavior becomes rooted in the home 
in my kids' lives and the culture of the organizations that I'm working in, where I'm resentful, I'm angry, I'm self-centered, and suddenly my children are, my workplace can be, on and on it goes. Or like you said, kids that are watching you and looking up to you as a mentor. So that's dramatic. What do do you got? Yeah, so um, for me and my shadow self, uh, my human nature or just sort of default setting is to derive my value and my identity from the world around me. Specifically for me, it's usually other people. Mm. Um, I want to derive my value from my boss or my husband or my parents or uh, people like that who are important and have influence on my life, um, which is great, but I'm seeking that affirmation and that validation from something outside of me, and that's always going to be unstable because I don't have control over those things outside of me. I have control over myself. I have control over my relationship with God, um, but I don't have control over the influence outside of me and certainly not for other people. So when I do that, I'm giving my power away, and it's it's an unstable, unhealthy existence for me. Um, one of my favorite uh, 12-step recovery sayings is that life is an inside job. Mm. Um, And I truly believe that. It starts in here. I only have control over myself. My power is in here. And so that that idea, too, is so contrary to what society says that that I think it can be easy to feel guilty or self-centered or selfish for wanting to nurture ourselves in our own power. Um, but really, that's where it comes from. And whenever I talk about this, I always think about, um, and I think I've shared before here, the great commandment where Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and he doesn't say love your neighbor more than yourself or love your neighbor instead of yourself. He says love your neighbor as yourself, meaning I can't love my neighbor or other people around me if I don't first love myself because then I don't even know what that looks like. Um, so I think that's that's the battle with the shadow self that I have to constantly be managing. Yeah, yeah, you can't give away what you don't have, right? right. Yeah, I think I definitely relate to that in that internal world. Um, I think for me, it's the shadow self's engagement with power has always taken on a couple of common forms. I think I already mentioned one, but it's entitlement, where I think power is owed to me or anything's owed to me, and I start wielding my influence to get what I feel is owed to me. Ooh, man, it is a disaster, like every single time. Because suddenly what happens is people become objects for my will. I start wielding my influence thinking that people should do what I want so I can get what I want. I want what I want when I want it. And man, when you have influence in that mindset, you just start running over people. I think you talked about just like coworkers and subordinates and family even can just become tools to get what I want from my life. And that's a disaster. I think the other big one for me has always been apathy or ignorance, right? I already mentioned ignorance where I'm just like, I just, I don't want this. So I'm just going to choose not to see it. Like, I don't want to think of myself as having influence. So, cause that scares me a little bit or I don't want to change. So I'm just going to ignore it and wield it blindly and just act like la la la, it's not there. And I think the other one is a little bit more insidious than that, which is I like the status quo, maybe like maybe the system that I'm operating my influence in works for me. And you mentioned being a black man as a white male in his early 30s, a lot of things work for me in my social areas. And there's just this tendency that can happen with us as human beings where once I have that benefit of a system, I don't want to wield my influence to change it. And I can get really apathetic about changing it, even if the power dynamics that are benefiting me are actually hurting and costing others. And that's been a big problem 
for me at times where I just like, I don't, I don't want this to change even if it's unhealthy. So why would I wield my influence to do it? And Christ really challenges me in those areas. And I think that's where I want to kind of make the transition to focusing really on the biblical models of power that we can look to. And obviously there are many biblical models of power and power dynamics and influence. I mean, you can just go right, if you want to, go read all of First and Second Kings, and you're going to get the whole hodgepodge of Israelite kings that are mostly terrible. Fun times. Because they're super into like idolatry and injustice, and it doesn't go very well. But then you'll also see repeatedly in that story kings like Josiah and Hezekiah who come along, and they have a heart for God, and they reform Israel, and they wield their power in a very other-focused way to kind of recenter Israel back to its calling. But... Beyond just those models, I also want to think about maybe how the biblical narrative as a whole influences how we think about power. Because I think that's really critical to the Bible story. You know, we as human beings in the Garden of Eden, we're told we're made in the image and likeness of God, and we're given this thing called dominion, which sounds really scary, but it's basically this concept of power. We're tasked with, in God's name, as reflections of his character, wielding our wills to grow more and more life of this abundant space that he's given us. And the biblical story, in a lot of ways, is humanity confusing dominion with domination, in which on one hand, it's about aligning ourselves with God's will, putting our hands in the dirt, and then according to his ways, help working alongside him to make things better. And we decide, no, actually, this creation is ours. It's for our purposes. I'm going to rule it by my will. And like I said, dominion warps into domination. And y'all, just take a look at the world if you want to see the outcomes of that human choice that plays out over and over again. So with that in mind, what are some examples in your mind from the biblical story about maybe a healthy vision of power? And then how does the biblical narrative really, as a broader story, speak into how we think about issues of power and authority? Go ahead. So. <laughs> Small <laughs> this question. Is, this, is a, this, is, this is actually a fun one for me. Um, I, I, yes, and I want you guys to, to kind of humor me just a little bit, right? So when I was, uh, I went to a, a small uh, Lutheran school back in Hollywood, uh, Florida, called St. Mark's. It's uh, not there anymore, but I, I went there from third to eighth grade. And in fifth or sixth grade, and I can't remember which, uh, we had a play, uh, The Fiery Furnace, King, King Nebuchadnezzar and the Three Guys in the, in the Hot Pit, right? I think everybody uh, pretty much should be aware. It's not a story that's often told. But anyway, I was in that play, and I had a part and that play was fifth grade. I'm not going to tell you how old I was. I, I, I am now, but it was a long, long time ago. I remember my part, and I've remembered it all this time, so I want to share my part with you, and then, and then I can go into why this is important Your to lines? me. My lines? Oh, wow. my yes. goodness. We told the king, we're sorry, man, but that law defies what God demands. We'll have to take the consequence, and trust the Lord for our defense. Okay, that was my part, okay? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the, reason, the reason why I came up with this story, this, this thing, thank you, Mike, you weren't, you weren't ready for that. I, I went to seminary and never <laughs> during, learned any of this. <laughs> during, during, when we met over there, I didn't want to bring that to you. I said, I'm going to surprise Mike that with that one, right? It's a surprise, right? It's a good one, though. Long time, uh, 40 years maybe? long time. Um, and the reason why that's important to me, I had to learn it for, for one, but it stuck with me and it resonated. These three young men who did not want to praise and give any kind of homage to King Nebuchadnezzar 
He did not because he was a false God. He was a false narrative, right? He was. And they just didn't care. They were going to risk losing their lives by being thrown into this furnace who King Nebuchadnezzar made seven times hotter than, than the normal furnace. So hot that when they were being dragged or walked to the furnace, um, the guys that, were, that did it, that were taking them, that were escorting them, they burned because it was, it was just that hot, right? And they were in there and because they were at peace. The power of the Lord and the, and the peace that, that, that really washes over you when you, have, when you have faith was in all three of them. And I just aspire, have always aspired to be like that. Because it's, and it's tough, it's, and it's hard, it's some, one of the most challenging things to do, but I aspire for that. When the king looked into the furnace and saw not three bodies, but four bodies, that was, that was Jesus Christ hovering among them, protecting them from the ravaged heat. And I aspire to be that person on a daily basis. I fail most days. I fail pretty much all days, but I do aspire because it is super important to me that I am trying to live my best life and honoring God and not, you know, not uh, uh, spilling sp- uh, false narratives out of my mouth on a daily basis. And this kind of speaks to some of, the, some of the responses I gave earlier, but thank you for begrudging me that opportunity to, sh- to share that. <laughs> it was, it's been in my brain for a lot of years. You know, that, that told you that I was, I was practicing every day up until that performance. That's yeah, wonderful. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, not to, I'm not going to geek out. Okay, I'm going to give a whole sermon on the book of Daniel. No. I love the book of Daniel for that reason, though, because, I mean, Daniel, and this is like the bane of my life is VeggieTales, um, because everyone who grew up on VeggieTales thinks that the book of Daniel is about lions, and it's like two verses in the entire book that is one of the coolest books in the Bible, and one of the most prophetic books to us today, because what is Daniel about? Well, it's about a guy living in Babylon, which is a pagan empire, who is working in its bureaucracy and is using the influence that the Babylonian empire has given him to do good for people, And it's about him learning where he has to draw a line in which he says, I'm going to give you my time, empire. I'm going to work. I'm going to work within the systems that you've created to bless others. But when Babylon comes calling and says, give us your loyalty, give us your faith, give us your identity, Daniel has to draw a line and say, say, no, I can't do that. And it becomes this very, I think, important book to us today about how can we remain faithful as Christians living in empire where we don't hate the place that we're working. In fact, we accept the influence that it allows us to wield and the positions and the, and the abilities and the resources it gives us to make the world a better place. But when empire comes and says, ah, but give me who you are, or ah, give me, like I said, your allegiance. We as Christians have to know where we say, that's a step too far, and I can't give you that. And like Daniel and his friends faithfully face the furnace or the lion's den with trust, that we are being faithful. I just think that's a powerful story. And I want to hear you wrap it again, but don't have time. <laughs> first, and, first and last time. Liz, do you, do you have any, any <laughs> first and last. Liz, do you have any examples that you want to shout out? Yeah, sure. I'm going to go with the Sunday school example. <laughs> Say it with me. Thank Jesus. you. Jesus. Only one person went to Sunday school and it was Lindsay. Um, so yeah, I'm going to say Jesus and I, and, and not just Jesus himself, but just his ministry and the examples. And I, I always think of, of, of people like the woman who washed his feet or 
the fishermen that he called, these are all by all standards, just ordinary um, people, surprisingly ordinary. And I think about that in comparison to just what kind of society says the definition of power is. And I feel like that's just big and loud and extreme, something that demands attention. Um, and I think that in Jesus's ministry, we see these examples where power looked like grace and humility and sacrifice. And I was, as I was thinking about that, I, I was immediately reminded of actually verses in Corinthians that are describing love as patient and kind, not boasting or selfish. And it struck me like, you know, what if power looks like love or can look like love? Instead of making ourselves big, it's making ourselves small, dying to our own ego as Jesus did. Um, and so I really feel like that's the biblical model of power that I try to follow unsuccessfully a lot of the times, but yeah. <laughs> that's what I try to come back to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we just, we did over the summer, a series on Philippians and I was just enamored with the Christ hymn of chapter two, which we explored. You can go check out that series on podcast or Vimeo, but in that hymn, it just talks about this upside down kingdom vision of the world that Christ's example offers us. And it's one in which I think radically transforms our understanding of power. It's about a God who empties himself of all status and prestige for others. A God who chooses to become a servant when he by all rights could become a king um, in the world's definition of it. A God who sees humility as the pathway to exaltation and suffering as the pathway to new life. And that is just such a radical thing to say is the truest image of the divine. And when I'm thinking about like, what does it mean to empty myself when it comes to power? What does it mean to embrace humility as the pathway to exercising ex healthy power towards exaltation? What does it mean to give it away for the good of others when every part of our culture says gain as much power as possible to get what you want? I mean, I think that's just radical stuff. I think it looks like me recognizing that there's no job on this good earth that is below me or beneath me, right? That true humility is me saying that like, I'm just one of the herd and whether it's mopping floors or exercising authority in terms of directing teams, it all is supposed to be done from this place of selflessness. And it's all supposed to be recognized as something that I am called to do in a season or a moment. And I just think that will change everything about how we understand what power is and then the purpose of that power in the world. So I guess as we close out this Sunday, any, I want to give you guys some opportunities for some final thoughts. You know, a lot of people talk about servant leadership. I think this idea of leading from behind people, basically, or leading from under people, choosing to lay ourselves down and how we exercise our influence. Uh, what does that tangibly look like for you guys? I think for me, Man, I really wish we had better language and I can't think of it as, as like leading from above or below or ahead or behind, but there's just not a better way that I can think of to say that. But I think that if you're in a position of authority or influence, as Desmond would say, which is, that is a much better way to say it. If you're in a position of, of influence or authority, I think there's an expectation or an obligation to leadership or power and, and maybe a traditional sense of the word even and and I think that that's not a bad thing but I think that it's expected um, and what I love about being in a position of power influence from 
the place of being a peer or even a subordinate is that it's unexpected. And I think there's something really special about that. And I, I feel like it could be intentional. Maybe we're choosing to have influence or intentionally trying to say, I want my boss to notice this thing about me or, or whatnot. Or I think it can be unintentional where we just live our lives in a way that people take notice of us, how we carry ourselves throughout the world. And maybe somebody else notices something and they are challenged or changed by the way that we live our lives or carry ourselves. So whether... It's intentional or unintentional. I, I really like, I think that leading from behind is not only possible, but I think that it's because it's unexpected, um, perhaps I think it's just strangely beautiful and, and powerful in a, in a very unique way. Amen. Um, when, I try, when I was trying to figure out the way, the best way to answer this question, um, one word just kept coming to me um, is just being humble. Um, if you're trying to be a servant leader, being a servant leader requires uh, many uh, teaspoons, tablespoons of being humble and understanding the purpose of the vision, the purpose of the work, the purpose of the people that you're serving, the purpose, uh, you know, why you're serving those individuals, and where do you want to get them to, and how are you going to do that? And I think a certain amount of... Um, being humble is going to get you there. That's been the recipe that I feel has been most successful to me because I've had parts of my life or seasons in my life where I've been incredibly arrogant and that, that, did, not, that did not work for me. Yeah. It did not work for me. Shocking. And yes, it, and, it, and, it does, and, I, and I feel like it doesn't work for anybody. And so because I've learned those mistakes, uh, some of those, very, those mistakes very hard and you come crashing to the ground, I pick myself up and say, you know what, let's do this. Let's do this just a bit differently. And, and when you add um, that, that ability to be humble and to be able to, to, um, to make mistakes and allowing yourself a little bit of grace, uh, I don't think we talk about grace enough because grace is super important. So just being, being humble um, throughout this, these processes, and I think that'll, that'll get us there more times than not. Amen. Amen. Well, I think humility is a good place to call it. So y'all, can you give them a round of applause? Thank them for their time. I know you guys want to get a lunch, so just two minutes. Um, as we get out of here, you know, we've been trying to think a lot about what this looks like for us very practically. And I think, honestly, they provided all of that. So I'm actually just going to choose to kind of end with a quote that stuck with me this week. And it comes from the Franciscan author Richard Rohr. And he says, the purpose of our lives is to humbly and graciously give back all that we have been given, which is everything. And I think when we're thinking about these positions or these roles that we play in a relationship, our family, a workplace, thinking back to the songs we sang about Christ giving it all, thinking back to this concept that from the moment we wake up, who here chose to breathe this morning? Not a single person. Not a single person. If your very first breath was a gift of grace from God, then what do you actually own? Nothing. It is all a gift. And that includes the positions you've been placed in. That includes the competencies you've hold. That includes the relationships that you have been blessed with includes everything. 
So what I'm going to challenge you guys to do this week is I'm going to challenge you to go into our world, into your marriages, into your family, into your workplace, into your volunteering opportunities with one goal in mind, and that is to humbly and graciously give back what you've been given. And I swear to God, you're going to watch your influence become healthier, more Christ-like, and more like the kingdom of God. And that is good news. Amen? Amen. Go out this week. Let's serve a broken world, and let's lead from a place of humble servanthood. I'll see you guys next Sunday.